0: WDBM East Lansing.
1: Welcome to the Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boodoo
0: and Daniel Puentes.
1: Many people realize that there is just as many things to discover in the ocean as in space. We still have not explored the entire ocean, and we're discovering new things all the time. Something that has fascinated scientists is how hydrothermal vents are at the bottom of the ocean. But to tell us more about that, we're here with Osama Elian about his research. Osama, may you please tell us about yourself and your studies?
2: Sure. My name is Osama Ilyan. I am a PhD candidate in the lab of Dr. Matt Shrank at Michigan State University, and my research is focused on understanding how the microbial community in a hydrothermal vent system called the Lost City, which is right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, survives and functions and what that can inform us about life in the deep biosphere right below the crust right beneath our feet and similar environments that we think exist in our solar system.
0: Thanks for joining us today, Osama. That's an interesting name for a place at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Why is the location you study known as the Lost City? The Lost City is
2: actually located on top of the largest undersea mountain in all the world, and it's called the Atlantis Massif. And uh, massifs are sort of the geologic name we give to mountains. A mountain is something that's over water, and a massif is basically the equivalent undersea mountain. And uh, the scientists that were surveying the area, they weren't actually looking for hydrothermal vents so they accidentally discovered it, and when you discover something, you get the naming rights. And the scientists that had the privilege of doing that saw the direct connection to the mythological Atlantis, which was theorized to be somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, and it was just a very fitting name to give to the site.
1: Osama, we've never discussed hydrothermal vents on the sci-files before. Would you mind explaining to us and our audience what they are?
2: A hydrothermal vent is sort of like a geyser if people have seen images of like old glory out at yellowstone or any of the geysers that we'll find at national parks around the country except it exists underwater and essentially there are two types of hydrothermal vents we have some that are basically resulting from magma that are underwater so if you can imagine lava that superheats the water and it dissolves all kinds of minerals from the rock shoots out this smoky colored kind of jet of water And that's called a black smoker hydrothermal vent. It's venting all that stuff out into the uh, surrounding seawater. And then there's uh, white smokers or clear smoker hydrothermal vents, which is what Lost City is. And instead of a lava or magmatic source right under it, it's actually the result of a chemical reaction. And it still heats up that water so much, but it's a lot slower, and it's a lot lower of a temperature than a black smoker. And it releases this sort of clear shimmery fluid into the surrounding seawater. And uh, one notable thing about Lost City is that it literally has these chimney-like structures. They look like cathedral spires that come out of the ocean floor, where they vent from the top of those structures will vent kind of like a chimney. And so we'll colloquially also call them uh, underwater chimneys or chimney sites interchangeably as well.
0: People don't realize that whenever you're at the bottom of the ocean, for example, it's really cold and the pressure can be really intense. How deep is the Lost City, and what are the conditions that exist at that depth? So because
2: Lost City itself is on top of an undersea mountain, it's not at the deepest point of the ocean, but it's still pretty deep. So it ranges from 700 meters at its shallowest to about 900 meters below the ocean waves. And the pressure down there is pretty extreme. It's still about 80 times what it is at sea level. So that means that it takes about the weight of a polar bear pressing down on an area the size of your thumb or a quarter, pressing down on every square inch of your body down there. And the temperature is near freezing. It's about four degrees Celsius, so not that warm. And it's very dark. There is almost nothing down there except whatever microbes are living in the chimneys themselves and whatever is slowly, quietly floating in the undersea darkness.
1: Wow, that's a lot of pressure. It makes me wonder, how are these microbes able to survive in such extreme conditions?
2: The environment itself is quite extreme the deeper you go. It's dark, it's cold, and as you go deeper, the pressure gets higher. So for us surface-dwelling organisms, it's as extreme as you could get. But there's still a lot of stuff that's happening in the ocean itself as you go deeper. It's not a completely isolated environment. There's microbes that are surviving all through the water columns. There's fish that's floating. There's fish that are dying and they're providing food for other organisms that are around. So in terms of an environment itself, it's not as extreme as you could get. But relative to us, it's pretty extreme. The Lost City hydrothermal system itself gets even weirder. It's like a little isolated island in the middle of all this extremity, and it gets even more extreme. So while the surrounding ocean water could be pretty cold, about 4 degrees Celsius, because of the chemical reaction that forms these hydrothermal chimneys, which is called serpentinization, you end up with water that's very hot that's venting out of it and that temperature is about 90 degrees celsius so just short of boiling but because we're so deep the water doesn't actually boil it's just very hot and it shimmers and it actually looks very beautiful on camera but the serpentinization chemical reaction itself also has the added side effect of creating very basic water or water that's very high in ph so it has a ph that ranges from about 9 to 11 And that's about the same as baking soda. And just like baking soda is white, that's actually what causes the chimneys to look white underwater and sort of precipitate or crystallize as the water comes out from the surface and reacts with the surrounding seawater. It creates these shiny, shimmering chimneys of highly alkaline and very hot fluid. And it's within this very extreme environment that gets very weird chemically because of this chemical reaction where we find this thriving community of extremophiles, which are extreme organisms, that are able to survive and thrive, and we still don't have quite the best explanation of how they're able to do that or why they're able to do that, and that's what we're trying to figure out.
0: So this is a pretty specific location to do your research at. How are you collecting your samples at this location? Do you use a remote vehicle or do you get into a sub like people see on documentaries?
2: So I think this is one of the most actually exciting parts about the job because it is the definition of exploration, literally going as far as you can possibly go to uncover new knowledge. We first, obviously, start by getting into a ship, and we've had the fortunate luck of working with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute uh, using their research vessel, the Atlantis, which is a very prestigious and uh, notorious vessel in oceanographic history. And the Lost City was actually discovered and analyzed using human deep-sea submersible alvin. It's a beautiful, snuggly white and red submarine. And depending on what you need to do, we also used a remotely operated vehicle in our last expedition in 2018 called Jason. And Jason was actually made famous for uh, having explored the Titanic with Dr. Robert Ballard in the 80s. And so we spent about nine days basically on this ship just trying to get to Lost City. In our instance, we were detouring quite a bit to avoid some of the tornadoes in the Atlantic at the time. And once we get there, it's 24 hours a day of deploying Jason with custom-made equipment on there, down to Lost City at about 700 to 800, sometimes 900 meters depth, with this custom equipment designed to measure temperature, measure the pH, to collect sample without contamination from the surrounding seawater, to break off samples of the chimney, and collecting the water. And then we also deployed some deep sea gas measuring equipment to try to understand a little bit more about the chemistry of gases that are emanating through the system. There's a lot of methane and a lot of hydrogen that are produced in the serpentinization process, which incidentally are also a big source of the microbial food, so to speak, in the system. And so it's a very technically intense and planning heavy expedition. It's dozens of people, dozens of crew, and lots of very expensive and really cool equipment, a lot of it customized just to be able to sample in one expedition this site.
1: Can you elaborate more on the chemical processes that occur at that depth, like the serpentinization process?
2: So serpentinization is super cool, personally, for me, because, especially as it relates to Lost City, So serpentinization is a very cool chemical reaction that happens when water comes in contact with a special type of rock called olivine, which is high in magnesium and iron. And uh, the reason it's called serpentinization is actually kind of cool. After this chemical process carries itself out to the end, the rock ends up looking greenish and cracked, and it almost looks scaly like the skin of a lizard or a serpent. And that's so how we got to the name of serpentinization for this chemical reaction. But I think what's cooler about the chemical reaction itself is it doesn't need any lava or magma or uh, external source of heat to generate the heat and the minerals that we need. And the cool thing about it is the result of this process is you release a lot of methane, you release a lot of hydrogen, and you also release a lot of heat which in evolutionary history, as far as the appearance of life is concerned, may have been all of the major constituents necessary for life to appear or the first forms of life to appear. The other cool thing about serpentinization is because it generates heat, it doesn't need any tectonic activity, it doesn't need any magma, it doesn't need anything super, super hot deep in the Earth's surface to heat up the water to generate these chemical reactions with the rock. And that opens up the realm of possibilities across the universe of places where serpentinization could be happening in planetary bodies that may be, quote unquote, geologically dead. They don't have a super hot core or magma that's flowing to provide a lot of the heat to generate these chemical reactions. And so, this might be a very magical recipe for uh, complex biochemistry or complex chemistry around the universe in addition to Earth. And it makes it super awesome to be
0: able to study it as
2: an example site at Lost City.
0: I can imagine that this serves as motivation for different searches of alien biology at these different planetary bodies, even within our own solar system. What are some places that are thought to host environments like this, besides here on Earth? So, this always
2: gets me super excited to talk about because I like to find any excuse to talk about Mars. And this is actually the perfect location where we think this environment, one, may have existed in the past, but two, may possibly still continue to exist in some places around the Martian polar regions where there could be water either trapped in ice or in the lower latitudes where there could be flowing water deep under the surface, still causing this chemical reaction to happen. Much farther, the Cassini probe was able to identify these plumes of water that are shooting out of the Saturnian moon Enceladus. And the chemistry was almost spot on the same as we find at Lost City, and we hypothesized that that same chemical reaction could be happening under the surface ice of Enceladus. But instead of the vent system existing just underwater, this system is actually venting out into space, which I think is super awesome.
1: I get how you're able to measure it here on Earth because you're here on Earth, but how are you able to know what chemicals are being released when they're all the way out in outer space?
2: I think this is one of the awesome engineering feats of the Cassini probe. When they were able to visualize these plumes that were able to shoot out into space, they were able to get the orbits just right around Enceladus that they were able to fly right through those plumes. And Cassini, before it was retired, actually had a mass spectrometer instrument right on that spacecraft, which basically sniffs the molecules that it comes in contact with. And it can give us a pretty good profile about some of the chemistry that's there. And using a little bit of math magic, we could extrapolate that information to figure out what the original medium looked like before it went out into space.
0: That's really cool that the probe literally flew through these plumes. Bringing us back to Earth now, how are the microbes that you collect in your water samples able to survive the transportation from the environment to your laboratory space?
2: These microbes are super hardy, and we spent a lot of time thinking about how to preserve them as best as we can for the various analyses that we would be doing either on the ship or when we got back to shore. Some of them are stored in a variety of chemicals that will allow us to freeze them very cold, minus 80 degrees Celsius. And then when we're ready to analyze them further, we could thaw them back carefully, and they'll return to a normal state of life and activity, which is super cool. Others are stored at very low temperature, not dissimilar from the surrounding ocean water. And they're sort of hanging out, almost paused, waiting for the right environment to be able to thrive and do their thing again. And that allows us to experiment with them and basically poke at their physiology Other components of those samples are actually stored in chemistry that kills everything, but it allows us to do more in-depth visual analysis, for example, with microscopy or other techniques. So we could figure out, for example, how they're organized or any cool chemistry that's surrounding the cells. Or if we wanted to look at the geology and the biology together in terms of geochemistry, for example, It allows us to do some of these analyses. So we have a different set of preservation strategies depending on what we are doing downstream.
1: Whenever you gather these biofilms close to these hydrothermal vents and then bring it back to your lab, what do you do with them specifically? For example, how do you monitor this in your lab when it's not the same conditions as it was down in the ocean?
2: That's one of the major experiments that I'm actually developing and working on. We have these biofilms that are essentially intact from when we got them at the bottom of the ocean, and we've preserved them enough that we could mess with them and try to understand how they're able to function. So we know enough about the chemistry at Wall City hydrothermal system to gander a guess about what we think the chemistry necessary for them to be active is, or basically what environment can we provide them that will give them a signal or cue to function as if they're in the system. And some of that is tied to, for example, sulfur chemistry. We think they love sulfur, they love hydrogen, they love methane, but it's a heterogeneous community. So it may be a specific proportion of all of those three that will get certain individuals in their community to activate at specific times along, say, a metabolic chain, whereas one member of this community will generate a molecule that the next member needs and then that second member will generate a new molecule that that third member needs, and so on and so forth, like a chain. And we can monitor this in the lab using actually sequencing techniques. There's a very important gene called the 16S gene that allows us to actually identify microbes. And very simply, we could figure out which microbe likes which molecule by how much 16S is present in our sample. it's sort of like a a fingerprint. If we get more of a fingerprint of one individual, then that individual is more represented versus another individual. So essentially, we're in the lab recreating the hydrothermal system, but we're modifying it a little bit to see which microbe likes which chemical component better. And that way, we could build up a holistic picture of who's doing what, who needs who, and how are they able to function in their own native system.
0: Just to summarize, you're looking at how all these different elements can play a role in impacting how these microbe colonies grow together as a system. However, when you're doing these kinds of optimization studies, do you find that these biofilm colonies actually exist in their optimized environment already, or are you finding them to be in some sort of other type of configuration, chemically speaking?
2: our lab has generally been able to recreate more or less, not necessarily in the most perfect way, but recreate to a good extent, the microbial community in environments like this. Now we run into a very unique problem with these microbes and that is sometimes they're active. You see that they're active, you see that they're alive, but sometimes they just don't divide, they don't reproduce. So while we could sustain the community, It just doesn't grow and it doesn't die, it just sort of exists. And so we think that one of the more unique ingredients that these communities may need may actually be time. So an E. coli cell, which is an example or model bacteria that we use in the lab, divides once every few hours. But these cells could maybe divide on the order of one once every dozens of years, hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years.
0: It's like you mentioned, these microbiome environments can be very different, and there could be a lot of dependencies on different natural elements that could just be existing naturally in the surrounding areas. But what makes these bacteria different from something like E. coli, for example, that we would see somewhere up here on the surface?
1: We recently had an interview about how a researcher alters the amount of sulfur that they're feeding their staph bacteria to measure the metabolism. You mentioned that you recreate the environment that these microbes are found in. However, have you tried altering what you're feeding them?
2: Yes. So one of the important things to realize is that when we measure the chemistry at Wall City, we're just taking a snapshot at one point in time of what the water that's coming out at the end of the chimney has chemically. It doesn't really tell us much about the tiny interactions that are happening on a microscopic scale across, say, a meter of chimney or two meters of chimney or a kilometer of chimney. So there could be a variety of concentration of chemistries along the physical space that the water is flowing through. And different microbes may like different concentrations. For example, if the concentration of polysulfide is too low, for example, uh, a microbe might not like to do anything with it. Or if the polysulfide is too high, a microbe may think it's poisonous and may die. So there might be a happy medium in between. And we could extrapolate that to the rest of the chemicals that could be at Lost City. So we try to give an array of doses to see which microbes like which concentration of which chemicals, and if that has to do with how they're metabolically producing energy down this daisy chain of microbes working together in a biofilm.
0: I feel like you're pretty familiar now with these microbial communities that you've been working with. How long have you been working on this project, and have there been any interesting conclusions that you've made based off of these studies? And finally, does this inform any future astrobiological studies?
2: I've had the privilege of working on this project since 2017, which sort of happened by accident. It was my rotation project, and the idea of trying to track how microbes are responding to this gradient of chemistry, which could be at Lost City, was my rotation project, and we ended up being really interested in it and running with it. And the interesting thing that we actually came up from Not just my work at Lost City, but the work of the lab and our our broader collaborators in general, is that these microbes are able to extract energy in some of the most unique ways imaginable. And sometimes they trick us. They trick us into thinking that they do one thing that actually do something completely different. And I think this is sort of humbling in terms of what we know about microbiology in general, because really we've studied maybe 1% of the microbes that are out there, and that's a generous assertion. But that means that 99% of what's out there we don't know. And so the array of physiologies, the array of metabolisms, the array of proteins and enzymes that these microbes could be using, the array of strategies is probably really wide. And every day we're discovering something new about for example, a gene that was mislabeled that produces something completely different than scientists previously thought. But more specifically towards astrobiology and understanding where life appeared, how it appeared, and where else it could possibly be, which is the definition of astrobiology. This is exciting because if you think about it, the world that we're living in right now, the environment that we are existing in is a much less extreme, very different environment than one that would have existed on an early Earth. And if, just to keep it close to home, the solar system had more or less the same chemistry spread around it early in the solar system's age, then the same building blocks that we are seeing maybe are still around and we can examine here were probably very widespread and more common elsewhere in the solar system. So appeared once on Earth, that probably means life has appeared elsewhere in our solar system. And if we can still find areas that we can find microbes in, and I think the most important finding really in the entirety of microbiology is that microbes are everywhere, then I'm willing to bet that we're going to find microbial life not on Earth, and it's not going to look so different from the stuff we've been studying for as long as we've been around.
1: Osama, I feel like you gave us some hints throughout the interview that was telling us that you actually went out there whenever you were all gathering samples. Can you please tell us what was your most memorable experience out in the field? Yeah,
2: just the fact that we were able to gather so many scientists on a ship and go to Lost City is amazing in and of itself. We dodged four hurricanes. We were all battling seasickness. And you'd think that'd be the most exciting part. But now it gets more exciting because you're deploying equipment while waves are crashing onto the deck and you're recovering samples and trying to not contaminate it or puke on it, which is always a funny story to tell. But I actually think the most memorable experience is two parts that I've had. The first is, you know, we were all hanging out on the bow of the ship and we're all a bunch of grad students and early career scientists. And for just a moment, as we were laying looking at the stars, we actually got to see a shooting star shooting right over the Atlantic. And we thought it was a very unique experience, but it turns out that if you stare up at the sky long enough, you'll see a shooting star almost every five minutes because the skies are so clear over the Atlantic. So the next day doing the same thing, I realized that the International Space Station actually passes overhead with pretty regular frequency at that specific location. So with the limited data that I had, I figured out the rising and setting of the space station during that point in the trip. And all of us were just hanging out, looking up and for a moment, the closest people to us were actually traveling 17,000 miles an hour, 200 miles above our heads in the International Space Station. And it was very poignant because what we were doing is trying to understand how life came about in the universe with this sight that's seven, 800 meters below our ship. And it was the most, I guess, poetic connection that you could have looking up at a space station passing by overhead. And to further illustrate just how lonely it was, they were actually the closest physical human beings to us at that point in time. And I like to retell that story. as just how big the world is, but also how small we are at the same time. And it gets me every now and then.
0: So it sounds like it's a science version of Deadly Catch, except thankfully you didn't get slammed by those hurricanes. I also relate a lot to that surreal feeling of being a part of that larger universe, which each of our research projects is solving in their own little way. Thank you again for joining us today to talk to us about your work and your experiences. We'll see you out on the port side.
2: Thanks, guys. It was really fun talking with you, and
0: I hope you still look up at
2: the night sky with wonder and still be curious about what's under your feet.
0: The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting.
1: The SciFiles can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact 9 fmorg
0: Thanks for listening, and remember the truth is in the science.